0: 66 books in the Bible, and we did the last one. So I'm figuring if it took us a year to do one, got like 66 years of teaching ahead of you, that's job security. Ever been to, um, as a matter of fact, I should tell you where we're headed next. Um, uh, this particular day, obviously, we're wrapping up the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. And then next week, um, this is part of a series called Destiny, and we started a year and a half ago with Destiny of a Man, studying the life of Joseph, went to Destiny of a Nation, studying the nation of Israel, and then moved on to Destiny of the World, studying the book of Revelation. Next week, I'm going to try and put a bow tie and tie all three of those together, so a year and a half of teaching into a half hour. You can pray for me. That'll be a challenge. Um... After that, though, obviously we're stepping into Christmas and preparing our hearts for Christmas and what comes with that. After Christmas, after the new year, we're going to be studying the book of Titus for about six weeks. Kind of a short book, a little study there. And then we're going to be doing the book of John after Titus. So that's where we're headed. Um, Let's take a minute and pray that God would prepare our hearts for what we're about to study. Would you do that with me? Father, we've declared truth in the song... That we just sang, you are unshakable, you are unstoppable, you are unchangeable, and whatever you have purpose to do, you will do it. If we 've learned anything about your nature and character is that you can be trusted, and everything that you say you will do, you do. With that in mind, Father, as we look into this last set of verses in this last chapter. In the book of the Bible, we ask that you would use your Holy Spirit to guide us. Allow us to see things that are not easily understood, but because of the work of your Spirit in our life, it's much easier for us to comprehend. We ask, God, now that you would receive this study time as a time that we've set aside to know more of your nature and character, and you would bless us and refresh us as a result of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ever been to a bad movie? One that all the previews made it look really, really good. And you went to it and you were so disappointed with the ending that you actually wanted to walk out and ask for your money back? I've done that. I've gone to movies where I've walked up to the desk and there's some um, child working behind the counter (laughs) who, who looks like I just stuck a flashlight in their eyes. They're so shocked when I said, that movie just really didn't cut it for me. I am so disappointed. I would like my money back. I'll have to call my manager. I've done that more than once because there's things that are hyped to make us expect that it's going to be really good and we get into it and it's really bad. Revelation is the reverse of that. We expect it to be really good, even though people talk it down and say it's really bad, but it's really good. And the ending does not disappoint. The ending is phenomenal because it's God putting his stamp on his word saying, what I have said, I will do. Look with me up on the screen so that I can reinforce that for you. It comes from Isaiah forty-six, 8. You'll see it repeated again in the book of Revelation. This is God speaking. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purposes will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. Catch that part in the middle. Declaring the end from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is talking to Lucifer, Satan, after the fall of man. And he says, the seed of this woman will crush you. From the beginning, God promised the end. We saw Satan crushed a couple chapters ago. Then we got to study what our destiny is in heaven. This is God emphatically saying there's an amazing sweep of history, and we've only been able to be part of a little tiny piece of it. We looked the very first week in the study of the book of Revelation in chapter 1 with John on the island of Patmos, a prisoner cast to the island. And he said, I was caught up to heaven and I saw amazing things that God told me to write down. That was Revelation chapter one. Now we find ourselves carried all the way forward into the eternal state in which Jesus speaks to us personally. He speaks to his church. That's Revelation 22. He's going to talk to you now. And he speaks through his word things that were written a long time ago. The text is really weighty. It's full pressure, force of pressure upon us because we have to take action with what's written here. It helps us to determine what we believe about God. What I said to you last week that I said I was going to repeat again this week and again next week still holds true. What you believe about God determines what you do next. What you believe about God determines what you do next. You'll see that reinforced this morning because there's a sense of urgency. Jesus says three times, Behold, I am coming quickly. I will explain that to you in just a minute, what he meant by that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 22, and we're going to start in verse 6 this morning. We left off last week in verse 5 where it said that we will reign forever and ever. Long time. And now it comes into verse 6. Revelation 22, verse 6. You'll see it as well up on the screen. And he said to me, this is an angel speaking to John, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants The things which must soon take place. The words are faithful and true, meaning all of Revelation, everything that John has just experienced, all that he has gone through, everything he's seen, everything that he's heard, we also, everything that we've studied, they're true. The words of Revelation are as true as the one who revealed them. Do you remember in chapter 1, Jesus was revealed by this title? He is known as the one who is faithful and true. So the one who is faithful and true at the very end of the book says, these things are faithful and true. And so what it does is it reinforces that everything that we've seen in the book of Revelation will come to pass. Everything will be carried out. What has been written is not mystical. It's not the result of some bizarre dreams on the part of John. And it's not an overactive imagination. It's an accurate description of the events and of persons yet to come who may very well be alive on planet Earth at this point, point in time. We don't know. I said this to you in week one. The events of Revelation may unfold in your lifetime. God may very well kick them down the street 500 years. We don't know. But what we understand is that these events and these persons will actually come to be. If we deny what's written in the book of Revelation, we also have to deny all that the prophets wrote in the Old Testament that came to be. I'll explain that to you in just a minute, but do you see that phrase, the God of the spirits of the prophets? Meaning that this one who's shown this revelation to John is the same God who showed the prophets in the Old Testament Things that would happen. It's the same God. The same God who spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament and New Testament is the same God who sent his angel. That's what he's reinforcing. So the prophecies by all the earlier biblical prophets, everything reinforces what's taught in the book of Revelation. Everything that was fulfilled then becomes a pattern for us. It sets up a form. If God fulfilled prophecies then, and it's the same God speaking then, it's the same God speaking here. And so we have a pattern. The prophetic record in Scripture is perfect. Did you know that? Everything that God said would happen in the time frame that it would happen happened to the nth detail. I'm going to give you just five examples from the Old Testament about things that were prophesied that would happen That happened in exacting detail. Five among hundreds. Think with me this first one. Israel being led into captivity. Now understand, the chosen people of God, yet they were so blatant in their refusal and rejection of God, God said through the prophets, you, my people, will be led into Babylonian captivity. Archaeologists have confirmed the Babylonian people conquered Israel and hauled away the Jewish people. Through the same prophets, God said, as a result of them hauling you away and taking you into captivity, I will destroy the greatest empire on the face of the earth, Babylon. He did indeed do that. The nation of Tyre rose up, T-Y-R-E, another great empire. God said through Isaiah, the nation of Tyre will collapse. No one could imagine it. As a matter of fact, it was so far stretched from people's mind, they could not envision that such a mighty empire would come down. But the prophets in Leviticus, the prophets in Isaiah, the prophets in Micah all spoke to the details about what would happen, and it all happened. Let me take you forward to something you're more familiar with, specifically Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Micah, the prophet, wrote it 400 years earlier. And yet Jesus was born exactly in that city. God fulfills his prophecies. There's one more I want to point you to. And that is specifically that Jesus would be killed in a certain manner and that he would be crucified by sinners. It comes from the book of Isaiah. Let me read this to you. You can read it later today yourself and see the detail that's there. I want to read it to you and explain what's going on here. Isaiah 53 Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through, now pay attention to this, this is a description of a crucifixion. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. 800 years before Jesus was crucified. 400 years before crucifixion was even invented as a form of corporal punishment, capital punishment. Scourging was unheard of. The description of a crucifixion written 400 years, 800 years before it was even, it came to be 400 years before it was invented. Think about that. That is like going back to the time of Columbus and having somebody write a description about an iPod. It's just mind-boggling the detail God gave through the prophets. And so when we approach the book of Revelation, we should not think of it any differently. God gave very exacting details about how he would carry things out. This is what it means. God will do exactly what he said he will do. So indeed, what you believe about God really does determine what you do next. He said also, there's things which must soon take place. Now we've been waiting 2,000 years for these things to soon take place. Doesn't sound like soon, does it? 2,000 years is a long time. Let's take the word must and soon together. First of all, when you see the word must in Scripture attached to this word soon, it's a prefix. Look at the definition on the screen for must. It means "n." it's a Greek word, a preposition. It denotes a fixed position. Now, when it's attached to the word tacos, not a Mexican dish, tacos, n tacos, it means fixed to a place in time. So let's look at the word tacos, the definition for it. A brief space of time within, in the Greek, n prefixed in haste, meaning quickly and speedily. So n tacos, meaning a predetermined period of time, That when it happens, it'll happen in rapid-fire succession. All of human history, thousands of years of existence, compressed into a seven-year tribulation. The tribulation period, we understand, is seven years in length, according to what we studied. So Jesus says they will soon take place. En tacos. When they happen, it'll happen rapidly. Go with me to verse 7 and behold, I am coming quickly. This is Jesus speaking now. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Who's the he there? You. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. First of all, Jesus said, you're blessed. You're blessed if you heed the words that are written here. What does he mean by the word heeds? I want to show you the definition on the screen the word is toreo it means a watch to guard properly by keeping the eye upon to keep you have an assignment from Jesus did you know that other than telling people about the gospel you have an assignment from Jesus you read it right here you are blessed if you heed meaning if you guard the word of God if you watch For the words of revelation to unfold. Jesus said there's a blessing upon you. Now understand specifically all of God's word is to be guarded and protected. It has to be defended against. Do you not live in a period of time in which people are constantly taking shots at God's word? Trying to diminish the authority of God's word? We live in the midst of a period of time unknown to our forefathers in which people try to diminish the authority of God's word, attempting to take away its authority. Jesus says, Toreo my word, guard it, defend it, be prepared to represent it, and you will receive blessing as a result of it. So all of Scripture is to be guarded according to what we read in the Bible. Look with me on the screen, 1 Timothy 6.20. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Guard what has been entrusted to you, 2 Timothy 1.13, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What's the treasure that's been entrusted to you? The truth of God's word. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are to tell it. To guard it. To guard it also means to obey it. Okay, Let's move forward into verse eight. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard it and saw heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. The first time since chapter one, we're reminded who's been writing all this. I, John, heard and saw these things, and he's so awestruck. Now understand, John didn't do this over the course of a year. He's writing constantly everything that he's seen. God said, write it down. So John's been writing. He didn't have 39 weeks to think it through. He's watching these events, and as a response to these events, he's so awestruck, he collapses at the feet of this angel and begins to worship him. You remember what I said in week one, if you were here? That as we study Revelation, we need to become wonderers and worshipers of the things of Jesus. John indeed became a wonderer and a worshiper. That was his response. Understanding the book of Revelation should make you worship. Do you remember what you saw in Revelation chapter 4 of God on his throne? The peals of thunder, the flashes of lightning, all the creatures surrounding the throne, it makes you a worshiper. So John had the right response. He just directed it at the wrong being, the wrong entity. And so the angel says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours. He's a created being also. And do you notice how old this angel is? He says what? I am a fellow servant of yours and of the prophet's and of those who heed the words. In other words, this angel was serving prophets back in the Old Testament. He's talking to John at this moment, and he's an angel who's serving us, those who heed the words of this prophecy. This angel's been around a long time, and so he calls John back to reality and says, don't do that. Don't plant your face in the ground in response to me. I'm a holy angel. I'm pointing you to God. Worship God. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Where else did we hear in Scripture? Those of you who are students of the Old Testament will remember a time when God revealed a prophecy and he said to someone, Seal up the words of this book. Daniel, that's right. Daniel was given insight into future things, but God said, Daniel, seal them up. Now is not the time. But to John, stepping all the way forward into the time of the New Testament, the end of the first century, God says, don't seal them up. Why? Because people need to know this information. The time is right. It's beginning to unfold. Not to teach revelation is to disobey Jesus. Not to study Revelation is to disobey because he says don't seal them up. Don't hold it back. People need to know this information. So don't seal up the words. Holding back the information robs the church of the information that it needs to know. God wants you to know the end of the story. He wants you to understand it. As hard as it is, Now, it says something very specific that's hard to understand. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. That phrase is very closely connected to do not seal up the words. They're arching together. In other words, this truth needs to get out there and people's response to the truth determines their eternal destiny. How people receive the information that is not sealed up determines what they're going to do. So the truth of Scripture becomes, one, an instrument of salvation or an instrument of damnation. People are either damned by it or saved by it, but they have to do something with the information. You can't just go on. So that's why it's saying those who hear the truth but continue to do wrong, they've made their decision and they've fixed their destiny. They've determined where they're going. Likewise, those who understand by hearing the word and practice righteousness, let them continue to be righteous. That's what he's saying here. So Revelation draws a line in the sand. Very clearly, you have to do something with this information and it becomes a warning. Decisions determine your character. Do you ever stop to think about that? Your decisions determine your character and your character, according to this, impacts your destiny. The decisions you make based upon the word of God and understanding who he is makes a difference about your eternal destiny. That's why I say what you believe about God determines what you do next. You have to do something with the information. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Jesus repeats it again. Pay attention. That's what the word behold means. Hey, pay attention. I'm coming And tacos, when I come, it's going to happen very quickly. But when I come, I'm going to reward those who have worked for eternity. Meaning that there's things that you will do that carry out in eternity. Things that you do here on planet earth, and Jesus is going to render rewards according to what men have done. Some things, we're told, will burn like hay. Other things are refined like gold and carry on into eternity, and it determines the reward. So the greater your faithfulness in this life, the greater rewards in heaven. So he says, I am Alpha and Omega. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to a Greek-speaking group of people. John was writing to Greek-speaking individuals in the church at this time. Otherwise, if he was speaking specifically, it would have said, I am A to Z, the English alphabet. But he's speaking to Greeks, so he says, Alpha and Omega, This is like an invitation. Let me explain this to you. There was a period of time, obviously, before the postal system in the United States did not exist. You go back far enough, there's a time when UPS and Federal Express did not exist. There's the Pony Express, but you go far enough back and there's no Pony Express. And so when someone wanted to have a party and they wanted their guest to come to their party, they would go door to door to their house to houses or they would send their representatives and hand out personal invitations. Not through the mail, but personal invitations. Jesus is saying, I am the beginning and the end and I am the one who's handing out the invitations to you. Look with me very closely. The A to Z. Now let, don't treat that statement too casually when you think Alpha Omega, A to Z. We've got A to Z heating and cooling and A to Z refrigeration and A to Z restaurants. Jesus is specifically saying the beginning, the source of all things and the end, the object of all things are wrapped up within me and I'm the one who's making this invitation to invite you into eternal life. The Alpha And the omega. So that's why he steps into verse 14 and says again, you're blessed if you do something. Blessed are those, verse 14, who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So he says, you get access into what we just studied last week, into the eternal city, into the tree of life, the crystal clear river, God's throne, if you've been washed and forgiven of your sins. You have friends in your life, individuals, family members who reject the fact that heaven is an exclusive place, that there's an exclusivity to heaven. You want to show them, verse 14, you don't have to show them anything else. Jesus is saying, If you have washed your robes, you've washed yourself of the sin through Jesus Christ, you have access to heaven. Look who doesn't have access. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons. In this period of time, dogs were not domesticated like we have today. God is not anti-dogs, okay? This is a period of time in which dogs roamed the streets. They were garbage pickers. Carnivores who went to the dumps to pick up trash to survive on. It was the lowest form of degradation you could bestow upon someone to call them a dog. Meaning without any moral fiber whatsoever. Living in the dumps. So God is saying, there's a very clear line. If you've washed your robes, your sin is gone, you're in. But if you've rejected it, you're on the outside, meaning the lake of fire. That's what we studied a couple weeks ago. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star, the only place in all of the Bible where Jesus declares himself, who he is specifically by saying, I, Jesus, the root And descendant of David, how can he be the root, meaning the base, and the descendant? He's saying there literally, I spoke David into existence, but I'm also his descendant. God, man, only the God man could say that. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to do what? To testify, to give witness to the fact. For who? For the church. I told you this closing was for you. He says right there, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches so that you would get it and understand it. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. It totally sums up the biblical teaching on the dual nature of Christ God the Son, God man. Who came to die for us? He's making a statement again, a reminder that he dwelt on earth. Verse 17 begins to wrap it up. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without any cost. You got two distinct invitations going on there. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit, obviously, and the bride is the church. And so the Holy Spirit himself and the church is saying, okay, bring it. Come on. We're ready. We've seen all of this, 21 chapters of explanation. And so the church, in proper response, should be saying, okay, we're ready. And then the invitation comes, and let the one who is thirsty come. So there's two different invitations. The church saying, okay, Jesus, do you remember the Lord's prayer? The disciples come to Jesus and said, Master, Teach us how to pray. Jesus' response I'll do it. This is how you should pray then when you talk to the Father. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. What's the next phrase? Your kingdom come. Even back then, Jesus said, You're going to want to pray for this. This is a pretty big deal. Pray for the kingdom, for the arrival of the kingdom of Christ. Second sentence in the Lord's Prayer God, you're mighty. By the way, bring your kingdom. So with spirit and the bride say, come. But Jesus is saying, not yet. Let those who are thirsty come so they have time to respond. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Does God take his word seriously? Doesn't sound too much like just a casual writing of collections, does it? When I read this as a teenager, I couldn't imagine the ramifications for what it meant. As I went into Bible college and studied God's Word intensely with scholars, I began to really comprehend what it meant to try and alter or change the Word of God. So much so that he says, you mess with my Word, you're going to answer to me. Look with me, first of all, at the definition for the word testify. On the, word, on the screen, you'll see the word martyreo. It's the root of the word "martyr." Here's the definition for it. To be a witness, to testify, charge, or give evidence. In the first century, when an author would write his collection of writings, whatever they were, could be Plato, could be Socrates, could be any period of time before that period in which this was written, in the first century and earlier, when an author wrote down his text, he would send it on to scribes who would reproduce it for public distribution they would always put a warning at the end of their original writing saying, you mess with the things that I wrote, I'm going to pray the gods would send plagues upon your life. That was very common for early authors to do. So if the scribes would mess with it or alter it in any way, they're doing it in fear because the author said, don't mess with my words. But notice how John says it. I martyreo... To everyone who not writes, but hears, everyone who listens to this, I'm telling you, the words of the prophecy of this book, they can't be changed. They should not be added. The authority and the words of prophecy written here are not to be altered in any way. I want to explain the significance of that in just a minute. Look with me on the screen at Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. So Revelation describes all of God's plans, all of God's purposes, and any alteration of it would be a alteration of Scripture. So 200 years ago, someone pops on the scene by the name of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith says, hey, I got a new revelation. I got a new revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's call it Mormonism. Now, that should make you shake in your boots that someone says, yeah, that verse there, I don't believe that. God told me some special things he didn't tell the rest of you, so I'll share it for you. Those kind of cults, when they pop up, you have to identify them for what they are. That's why Jesus said, You need to tereo my word. You need to guard it and protect it. You need to heed these words because there's false prophets. There's frauds. People who pop on the scene and they lead people astray, denying Jesus Christ. Okay, this is where it ends, verse 20. He who testifies, martyreo, To these things says, this is Jesus speaking, Yes, I am coming to Reo, (sniffs) quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Things will not continue on forever and ever as they are. God will come. It's a confirmation of God's promises. God's word promises us that he will come. In the very beginning of this teaching, a half hour ago, I read to you Isaiah 46. It ended with Isaiah 46:11. Let me read it to you again. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. Okay, so 2,000 years have gone by. And people are on the scene obviously saying, yeah, you guys actually believe that? I mean, 2,000 years? How long are you going to wait? I mean, I've heard of patience, but come on, give me a break. 2,000 years? You really buy into that? Fortunately, God saw that coming too, and he had an answer. Look with me on the screen at 2 Peter's 3. 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day the lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness here's the reason why it hasn't happened but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance how appropriate that the last book of the bible the last chapter and the last verse with the last sentence says the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd be facing a terrible destiny. So John closes it appropriately for the church, the grace of Jesus Christ who redeemed you from your sins and bought you back. He's the one who determines your eternal destiny. How fantastic of a promise is that? So I ask you this morning, Where's your destiny? Is it in heaven? According to the authority of Scripture, if you claim the name of Jesus Christ, your destiny is in heaven. You reject it. Scripture says you're on the outside looking in, wishing for it. Church, you have a great promise. God's word has never lied. Everything he said he will do, he will do. Why don't you stand up with me? Let's close in prayer. Father, if it was not for the work of grace in our life, for the redemption of everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ, we would be on the outside. And we would be associated with those who have no hope. But because of what you did through the work of your Son, we have a hope and we have a destiny. Thank you for your grace. Father, not just that we escape the lake of fire. Not that we escape separation from you for all eternity. But that we get to be called the sons and the daughters of the King of Kings. How amazing, Father. God, I ask that you go with us this week as we leave this room. Reminding us of the grace that you have blessed us with. It's in the name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask this. Amen. Have a great week.